Section 35 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 10. Section 35. Selected Works by Ernst Curtius. Ernst Curtius, 1814-1896. Ernst Curtius, a noted German archaeologist and historian, was born at Lübeck, September 2, 1814. He studied philology at Bonn, Göttingen, and Berlin. When in 1837, Christian August Brandis was appointed confidential adviser to Prince Otho of Bavaria, the newly elected King of Greece, Curtius accompanied Brandis's family to Athens as a private tutor. He remained with the Brandises until 1840, when he joined Otfried Müller's archaeological expedition to Delphi. No sooner were the excavations well underway, however, than Müller died. Curtius thereupon returned to Germany, stopping at Rome on the way, and in 1841 took his doctor's degree at Hull. In 1844 he was appointed tutor to the Crown Prince of Prussia, the late Emperor Frederick, being at the same time made a professor extraordinary at the University of Berlin. He held his position as tutor to the crown prince until 1850, when the latter matriculated at Bonn. In 1856 he succeeded Hermann as professor of classical philology at Göttingen, but returned some twelve years later to Berlin to occupy the chair of classical archaeology and to act as director of the Cabinet of Antiquities in the Royal Museum. Curtius also much advanced the study of classical archaeology as presiding officer of the Archaeological Society, as editor of the Archaeological Journal, as perpetual secretary of the Royal Academy, and as the founder of the German Archaeological Institute at Athens. He undertook a number of scientific missions in the service of the Prussian government, and, in 1874, concluded with the Greek government a convention which secured to the German Empire for a term of years the exclusive right to make excavations in the Greek kingdom. The following year, the first excavation was begun at Olympia in Elis, the site of the ancient Olympic Games, under the direction of Curtius, who, with others, published the results in a voluminous and most interesting report. Curtius' chief work is his History of Greece, which appeared in 1867. It was originally published in three volumes as one of a series of manuals for classical students issued by a Berlin house, and was consequently intended for popular use, a circumstance that necessitated the omission of the copious notes in which the text of a German scientific work is commonly lost. It showed a remarkable familiarity with the climate, resources, and physical characteristics of Greece, and interpreted ancient life with much eloquence from the classical literature and from the monuments of ancient art. But the monarchical leaning of the author prevented him from entering fully into and appreciating the public life of the democratic communities which he described, and his enthusiastic temperament led him sometimes to exaggerate and to be too eager a partisan, to accept unproven hypotheses too readily and press them too hard. Besides his history of Greece, Curtius's most notable works are Peloponnesus, 1850-1851, which describes in detail the ancient remains of the Peloponnesus, the Stadtgeschichte von Athen, 
Municipal History of Athens, 1891, and Sieben Karten zur Topographie von Athen nebst Erleutendem Text, Seven Maps of Athens, 1886. His life was a busy and eminently distinguished one, as an archaeologist, historian, and instructor, and his death in the summer of 1896 was generally lamented by his associates. The Causes of Dislike Towards Socrates from the History of Greece The Athenians disliked men who wished to be different from everyone else, particularly when these eccentrics, instead of quietly pursuing their own path and withdrawing from the world like Timon, forced themselves among their neighbors and assumed towards them the attitude of pedagogues, as Socrates did. For what could be more annoying to an Athenian of repute than to find himself, on his way to the council meeting or the law court, unexpectedly involved in a conversation intended to confuse him, to shake his comfortable self-assurance, and to end by making him ridiculous? In any other city such conversation would have been altogether hard to manage, but at Athens the love of talk was so great that many allowed themselves to be caught, and that gradually the number became very large of those who had been the victims of this inconvenient questioner and who carried about with them the remembrance of a humiliation inflicted on them by him. And most of all was he hated by those who had allowed themselves to be touched and moved to tears of a bitter recognition of their own selves by his words, but who had afterwards sunk back into their former ways and were now ashamed of their hours of weakness. Thus Socrates had daily to experience that the testing of men was the most ungrateful of tasks which could be pursued at Athens, nor could he, without the sacred resolution of an absolutely unselfish devotion to his mission, have, without ceasing, obeyed the divine voice which every morning anew bade him go forth among men. But that there were also more general and deep-seated grounds for the sense of annoyance manifested by the Attic public is most clearly proved by the attacks of the comic state. To me, too, it is said in a comedy by Eupolis, this Socrates is offensive, this beggarly talker who has considered everything with hair-splitting ingenuity. The only matter which he has left unconsidered is the question how he will get a dinner today. Far more serious were the attacks of Aristophanes. His standpoint, as well as that of Eupolis and Cratinus, was the ancient Attic view of life. He regarded the teachers of philosophy, round whom the young men gathered, as the ruin of the state. And although he could not possibly mistake the difference between Socrates and the Sophists, although, moreover, he by no means belonged to the personal enemies of Socrates, with whom he rather seemed to have enjoyed a certain degree of intimacy, yet he thought it both his right and his duty, as a poet and a patriot, to combat in Socrates the sophist, nay, the most dangerous of sophists. The Athenian of the old school hated these conversations, extending through whole hours of the broad daylight, during which the young men were kept away from the palestry. These painful discussions of topics of morality and politics, as to which it behooved every loyal citizen to have made up his mind once for all. If everything was submitted to examination, everything was also exposed to rejection. And what was to become of the city, if only that was to be allowed as valid, which found gracious acceptance at the hands of this or that professor of talk? If everything had to be learned, if everything was to be acquired by reflection, 
then there was an end of true civic virtue, which ought to be a thing inborn in a citizen and secured by his training as such. In these days, all action and capability of action was being dissolved into an idle knowledge. The one-sided cultivation of the intellect was loosening the sinews of men and making them indifferent to their country and religion. From this standpoint, the poet rejects all such culture of youth as is founded upon the testing of the mind and leading it to perfect knowledge and lauds those young Athenians who do not care for wasting their time by sitting and talking with Socrates. The priestly party, again, was adverse to Socrates, although the highest authority in religious matters which existed in Hellas, and had at all events not been superseded by any other, had declared in his favor. At the suggestion of Chirophon, who from his youth up was attached with devoted affection to his teacher. His was an enthusiastic nature, and he desired nothing so ardently as that the beneficent influence which he had experienced in his own soul might be shared by the largest possible number of his fellow citizens. For this reason, he was anxious for an outward recognition of the merits of his so frequently misjudged friend, and he is said to have brought home from Delphi the oracle which declared Socrates to be the wisest of all men. Now, although this oracle was incapable of giving a loftier assurance of his mission to the philosopher himself, although it could not even remove the antipathy of the public, yet it might be expected that it would disarm the calumny representing Socrates as a teacher of dangerous heresies, and in this sense he could not but personally welcome the Delphic declaration, for it must be remembered that he continued to regard the oracle as the reverend center of the nation, as the symbol of a religious communion among the Hellenes, and in disallowing all presumptuous meditation on the right way of venerating the gods, he entirely followed the precedent of the Delphic oracle, which was in the habit of settling questions of this kind by the answer that it was according to the usage of their fathers that men should venerate the gods. At Delphi, on the other hand, there could be no question as to the importance of one who was leading the revolted world back to reverence for things holy, and who, while his contemporaries were derisively despising the obsolete ways of the past, and running after the ignis fatui of the wisdom of the day, held up before their eyes the primitive sayings of the temples, a serious consideration of which he declared to be sufficient to reveal the treasure of immortal truth contained in them. If it was confessedly impossible to put an end to the prevailing desire for independent inquiry, then the priests could not but acknowledge that this was the only way by which the old religion could be saved. Even the recognition by Delphi, however, was unable to protect Socrates against the suspicion of heresy. The fanaticism of the priestly party increased in inverse ratio to its prospects of real success. It regarded any philosophical discussion of religious truths as a desecration, and placed Socrates on the same level as Diagoras. Finally, the Democrats, who after the restoration of the Constitution were the ruling party, hated philosophy, because out of its school had issued a large proportion of the oligarchs, not only Critias and Theramenes, but also Pythodorus, the archon of the days of anarchy, Aristoteles, one of the four hundred and of the thirty, Charmides, and others were known as men of philosophical culture. Philosophy and the tendency towards political reaction accordingly 
seem to be necessarily connected with one another. In a word, Socrates found opposition everywhere. Some deemed him too conservative, and others too liberal. He had against him both the sophists and the enemies of the sophists, both rigid orthodoxy and infidelity, both the patriots of the old school and the representatives of the renovated democracy. Notwithstanding all this hostile feeling, the personal security of Socrates was not endangered, because he pursued his path as a blameless man, and because it was a matter of conscience with him to avoid every offense against the law. But after the restoration of the Constitution, a variety of circumstances continued to imperil his position at Athens. Socrates as an influence and as a man. From the History of Greece. If we contemplate Socrates in his whole way of living and being, and in truth no other personage of Greek antiquity is so distinctly brought before our eyes, it seems to us, in the first place, as if at Athens he were not in his natural place. So foreign to Athens are his ways, and so dissociated from it is his whole individuality. He cannot be fitted into any class of Athenian civil society, and is to be measured by no such standard as we apply to his fellow citizens. He is one of the poorest of all the Athenians, and yet he passes with a proud step through the streets of the city, and confronts the richest and best-born as their equal. His ungainly and neglected exterior makes him an object of public derision, and yet he exercises an unexampled influence upon high and low, upon learned and unlearned alike. He is a master both of thought and of speech, yet at the same time an opponent on principle of those who were the instructors of the Athenians in both. He is a man of free thought, who allows nothing to remain untested, and yet he is more diligent in offering sacrifices than any of his neighbors. He venerates the oracles, and reposes a simple faith in many things which the age laughs at as nursery tales. He blames without reticence the dominion of the multitude, and yet is an adversary of oligarchs. Entirely his own master, he thinks differently from all other Athenians. He goes his own path without troubling himself about public opinion. And so long as he remains in harmony with himself, no contradiction, no hostile attack, no derision vexes his soul. Such a man as this seemed in truth to have been transplanted into the midst of Athens as it were from some other world. And yet, unique in his kind as this Socrates was, we are unable on closer examination to mistake him for aught but a genuine Athenian. Such he was in his whole intellectual tendency, in his love of talk and skill in talk, growths impossible in any but Athenian air, in the delicate wit with which he contrived to combine the serious and the sportive, and in his unflagging search after a deep connection between action and knowledge. He was a genuine Athenian of the ancient stamp, when, with inflexible courage, he stood forth as the champion of the laws of the state against all arbitrary interference, and in the field shrank from no danger or hardship. He knew and loved the national poets, but, above all, it is in his indefatigable impulse towards culture that we recognize the true son of his native city. Herein lay a spiritual affinity between him and the noblest among the Athenians, a Solon and a Pericles. 
Socrates, like Solon, thought that no man is too old to learn, that to learn and to know is not a schooling for life, but life itself, and that which alone gives to life its value. To become by knowledge better from day to day, and to make others better, appear to both to be the real duty of men. Both found the one true happiness in the health of the soul, whose greatest unhappiness they held to lie in wrong and ignorance. Thus, with all his originality, Socrates most decidedly stood on the basis of Attic culture, and, if it is taken into consideration that the most celebrated representatives of sophistry and the tendencies akin to it all came from abroad, for example, Protagoras from Abdera, Prodicus from Chios, Diagoras from Melos, it may fairly be affirmed that, as against these foreign teachers, the best principles of Attic wisdom found their representative in Socrates. Far, however, from merely recurring to the ancient foundations of patriotic sentiment, fallen into neglect to the great loss of the state, and from opposing himself on an inflexible defensive to the movement of the age, he rather stood in the very midst of it, and merely sought to lead it to other and higher ends. What he desired was not a turning back, but a progress in knowledge beyond that which the most sagacious teachers of wisdom offered. For this reason he was able to unite in himself elements which seemed to others irreconcilably contradictory, and upon this conception was based what most distinguished him above all his fellow countrymen, the lofty freedom and independence of his mind. Thus, without becoming disloyal to his home, he was able to rise above the restrictions of customary ideas, which he most notably achieved by making himself perfectly independent of all external things, in the midst of a people which worshipped the beauty of outward appearance, and by attaching value exclusively to the possessions which are within, and to moral life. For this reason, too, his personal ugliness, the broad face with the snub nose, thick lips, and prominent eyes, was a characteristic feature of his individuality, because it testified against the traditional assumption of a necessary union between physical and intellectual excellence, because it proved that even in a form like that of Silenus there might dwell a spirit like that of Apollo, and thus conduced to a loftier conception of the being of man. Thus he belonged to his people and to his age, but stood above both. And such a man the Athenians needed, in order to find the path whereon it was possible to penetrate through the conflict of opinions to a moral assurance, and to reach a happiness containing its own warrant. Socrates appears before us as an individuality complete and perfect, of which the gradual development continues to remain a mystery. Its real germ, however, doubtless lies in the desire for knowledge, which was in it in him with peculiar strength. This desire would not allow him to remain under pupillage to his father. It drove him forth out of the narrow workshop into the streets and the open places of the city, where, in those days, every kind of culture, art and science was offered in rich abundance. For at the time when Socrates was in his twentieth year, Pericles stood at the height of his splendid activity, 
which the son of a sculptor might be supposed to have had occasion fully to appreciate. The youthful Socrates, however, brought with him out of his father's house a certain one-sided and, so to speak, bourgeois tendency, that is, a sober, homely sense for the practically useful, which would not allow itself to be dazzled by splendor and magnificence. Accordingly, he passed by with tolerable indifference the much-admired works of art with which the city was at that time filled. For the ideal efforts of the Periclean age he lacked comprehension. Nor do the tragedies of a Sophocles appear to have exercised much attraction upon him. If there was one-sidedness in this, on the other hand, it bore good fruit, in so far as it confirmed the independence of his judgment, and enabled him to recognize and combat the defects and diseases from which Athens suffered even in the midst of her glories. But, although the son of Sophroniscus carried the idea of the practically useful into the domain of science, he gave to it, in this, so deep and grand a significance, that for him it again became an impulse towards searching with unflagging zeal for all real means of culture offered by Athens, for he felt the impossibility of satisfactorily responding to the moral tasks which most immediately await men, without the possession of a connected knowledge. Thus he eagerly associated with men and women esteemed as highly cultured. He listened to the lectures of the sophists, acquainted himself with the writings of the earlier philosophers, which he found to be still a vital effect upon his contemporaries. Thoroughly studied with friends, desires of self-improvement, the works of Heraclitus and Anaxagoras, and in this constant intercourse he gradually became himself another man, that is, he grew conscious of the unsatisfactory standpoint of the wisdom of the teachers of the day, as well as conscious of his own aims and mission. For, in putting questions of a kind which could meet with no reply, and in searching for deeper things than could be offered to him by his hearers, he gradually became himself the person from whom the impulse proceeded, and from whom, in the end, was expected an answer to the questions which had remained unsolved. He, the seeker after instruction, became the center of a circle of younger men who were enthusiastically attached to him. In how high a degree that which he endeavored to supply corresponded to the deeply felt needs of the age is evident from the fact that men of the most utterly different dispositions and stations in life gave themselves up to him. Youths of the highest class of society, full of self-consciousness, buoyancy, and reckless high spirits, such as Alcibiades, and again men of a melancholy and timid turn of mind, such as the well-known eccentric Apollodorus of Phalaris, who, perpetually discontented with himself and others, led a miserable existence, until in Socrates he found the sole individuality appeasing his wants, and in intercourse with him the satisfaction for which he had longed. To him, Socrates was all in all, and every hour during which he was away from Socrates he accounted as lost. Thus, Socrates was able to reawaken among the Athenians, among whom personal intercourse between those of the same age, as well as between men and youths, was disturbed or desecrated, 
either by party interests or by impure sensuality, the beneficent power of pure friendship and unselfish devotion. Sober and calm himself, he excited the noblest enthusiasm, and by the simplest means obtained a far-reaching influence, such as before him no man had possessed at Athens, even before the peace of Nicias, when Aristophanes made him the principal character in his clouds, he was one of the best known and most influential personages at Athens. As Socrates gradually became a teacher of the people, so his mode and habits of life, too, formed themselves in indissoluble connection with his philosophical development. For this was the most preeminent among his qualities, that his life and his teachings were formed in the same mold and that none of his disciples could say whether he had been more deeply affected by the words or by the example of his master. And this was connected with the fact that from the first his philosophy directed itself to that which might make men better and more pleasing to heaven, freer and happier at once. To this tendency he could not devote himself without rising in his own consciousness to a continuously loftier clearness and purity, and without subjecting to reason the elements inborn in him of sensual impulses, of inertia and passion. Thus he became a man in whom the world found much to smile and mock at, but whom even those who could not stomach his wisdom were obliged to acknowledge as a morally blameless and just citizen. He was devoted with absolute loyalty to his native city, and without desiring offices and dignities, he was, from an inner impulse, indefatigably active for her good. For the rest, Socrates, with all his dislike of the pursuit of profit and pleasure, was anything but a morose eccentric like Euripides. From this he was kept by his love of humankind. He was merry with the merry, and spoiled no festive banquet to which he had been bidden. In the friendly circle he sat as a man brave at his cups, and herein likewise offered an example to his friends how the truly free can, at one time, suffer deprivation, and at another, enjoy abundance, without at any time losing his full self-control. After a night of festivity, his consciousness was as clear and serene as ever. He had, after a rare fashion, made his body an ever-ready servant of his mind. Even physically he could do things impossible to others, and, as if protected by some magic charm, he passed unhurt through all the pestilences of Athens, without ever timidly keeping out of the way of danger. Fully assured of the inner mission which animated him, he allowed nothing to derange or to confound him. Hostile attacks and derision touched him not. Nay, he was known to laugh most heartily of all the spectators when that sinner Aristophanes exhibited him as a dreamer, abstracted from the world and hanging in a hammock between heaven and earth and when the other comic poets made the public merry with his personal appearance. For the same reason, lastly, he was inaccessible to all the offers made to him by foreign princes, who would have given much to attract the most remarkable men of the age to their courts. The Thessalian grandees in particular, Scopas and Cranon, and Eurylochus at Larissa, emulated one another in their endeavors to secure him but he was no more tempted by their gold than by that of Archelaus, the splendor of whose throne, obtained by guile and murder, failed to dazzle Socrates. 
he replied with the pride of a genuine republican that it ill befitted any man to accept benefits which he had no power of returning. End of section 35